Religion is big business nowadays. Within the global context of Muslim consumers, quote-unquote Islamic commodities have become increasingly popular over the past few decades. Fage Shirazi explores the industrial and discursive production of halal products in Brand Islam, the Marketing and Commodification of Piety, published with the University of Texas Press in 2016. In the wake of increased insecurity due to the rise of anti-Muslim sentiments and policy, Islamic-branded products have become an essential means for shaping and expressing social identities. The commodification of a religious orientation has produced a halal consumerism that pervades the branding and marketing logic of several industries. In our conversation, we discuss the corporatization of halal food industry, Islamic products and non-Muslim publics, the politics of slaughtering animals, Islamic-branded toys such as hijabi dolls, cosmetic and toiletry products, and the Muslim fashion industry. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Fage Shirazi about brand Islam, the marketing and commodification of piety. Welcome. How are you? Good morning. How are you? Great. Thanks for, for writing a very, very interesting book. Uh, this is a topic I think lots of people will really get drawn into once they kind of hear the, the ins and outs of brand Islam. So um, perhaps you could start there. What exactly do you mean by this phrase, brand Islam, and how do you use it in the book? Actually, since I'm not in the field of marketing, I am not really using the theory of how branding starts and what the marketers do to establish a brand name. However, I have looked at several theories in terms of how consumers already have make up their minds prior to purchasing items or something that they prefer. And I have come across to see that uh, even in the field of marketing, preferences for religious goods is really high on the market. And obviously, Islam is not the only religion that can sell products. But in my book, I have focused on Islam, and I decided that perhaps selling Islam would have been a better topic uh, for the uh, or title for the book. But I decided on uh, brand Islam because in my understanding and in my way of dealing with the topic, Islam has become a brand name for many other products. So this is how I describe at the beginning, and I really wanted uh, to make sure that the readers of my book do not make a mistake that this is a marketing book. It is not. It's a social science, and it's basically on the uh, topic of how a religion can sell products. What you call halal consumerism is very much at the crux of this book, and I think this is uh, part of what you're talking about here with brand Islam. So can, can you tell us a little bit about what does halal mean in the context of consumerism? And in terms of commodification of a religious orientation, how should we think about branding of halal? Uh, yes, of course. Actually, anything to do with Islam in the way of 
principle of the religion. It has to be qualified with certain uh, denominations uh, in terms of products or ideas or whatever that a, a person thinks about Islam. It has to have certain quality in terms of halal. Halal is an Arabic term which means permissible by religion. And what that means is not only for the food uh, or for the drinks or edibles, other edibles, but it's also for principle of thought, services, conducting business, and a whole lot of other categories. So halal has become the principle for lots of things that we see in the market. Basically, even to the Muslims, halal basically brings the idea of uh, something has to do with consumption of edibles, but it is not true. Halal could be the thoughts, could be the service, could be the clothes, could be the accessories people wear, and this is the part that has become the real good marketing pitch for using Islam, not only to sell food, but also goods. How can I explain this a little further? For example, in terms of accessories, handbags, shoes, belts, that are made out of leather. And one may question, uh, what is halal shoes mean? It's not the style. It's the leather that is used to produce the shoe or the belt. And um, those that are really halal conscious people will only buy the types of leather that first is permissible, the animal that was used in the production of the leather. The animal was, by religion of Islam, permissible. So, pig skins or any other types of skins that Islam does not allow, is not going to be made into the shoes and called halal. The second principle that they will follow would be, even if it's a cow's leather or a sheep's leather, um, it has to be slaughtered in the uh, permissible way that is very similar to kosher in, in Judaism and in Islam it's called dabiha. So, even if the animal is halal, by its virtue that is a cow is permissible to eat, but if the slaughter process is not done in the principle that is preached by the religion, uh, it still cannot be halal. So a halal pair of shoes will have to go to a big chain of the processing and to be certified as being halal. Now, why do consumers want to buy Islam-branded products? What, what did you find in your research? I found out that in the past, maybe um, since 30 years, I have noted that Muslims have become actually Muslims in the West, have become more conscious about 
um, the principle of the religion, and many of them perhaps were not a practicing Muslim, but the new generation of the Muslims either were first generation or um, second generation, or even the newcomers to the religion, are really those that most of these products are catered to. For example, maybe their parents were not as religiously conscious as they were. They were just Muslim, but they were not really halal conscious. But this new generation had made that principle of being a good Muslim, follow the principles of Islam, uh, eat the proper things, wear the proper things had become the, um, the motto maybe for a new lifestyle. And I really think in my book also I have mentioned a lot of times, most probably in the European nations, the idea of Islamophobia and xenophobic and being anti-Muslims, immigrants, and a whole bunch of other social issues had promoted to this self-consciousness about their religious identity. Many of these youth, even though they are born and raised in the countries that they call home, they don't feel really at home because of the discriminations and because of the rigorous Islamophobic attitudes towards them, they prefer to use the religion as their identity. So I'm saying that a lot of these products in the West is catered to them. Because if they were living in the Muslim-majority countries, they wouldn't even be thinking about eating halal because assumption is everything was halal. And that's not true. Now, you do spend a good deal of time on uh, food industries, which, um, of course, for, for many, this is what they think of when they're thinking of halal. But you also explore in this context kind of the politics of slaughtering of animals, of uh, corporate uh, halal products. Um, what are the issues that are involved in the debates around halal food, halal slaughter, uh, especially in these Western countries that you're talking about? The idea of the politics and halal is very interesting, and I uh, probably had touched on that in several chapters. The halal meat by itself has become a big issue within the European countries that we are also able to see that they have much more problems in their politics, in their local politics, about the Muslims and the Muslim immigrants and uh, a host of other things that um, we read daily in the newspaper. So you may ask that, what halal has to do with such cultures. Well, another principle that had become a debate, another issue that had become the debate, is the idea of how the Muslims slaughter their animals. By the principle of the religion, 
you are forbidden to eat and consume the flesh of the dead animals. And you are forbidden to drink blood. So these had given rise to the idea of Muslims cannot consume any animal that first has been shocked and uh, electrocuted and then been slaughtered. Because by the principle, when the animal goes through the shock, it's actually dead. And then it's a slaughter, then that means Muslims will not eat such meat because it's a dead animal. So the Europeans and most of the people uh, in the West, I'm just saying European, but I'm including Australians, New Zealanders, and the Western culture, have a different ethics about a slaughter. And this is slaughter principles that the animal will suffer if it goes through, you know, a shot cut before it's electrified, um, before it gets the shock. It has given rise to the debate of inhumane way that the Muslims butcher the animal. It's exactly the same way as the principle of kosher for the Jews. We see the politics also plays in this rigorous debate. For example, many of the European countries banned by the government uh, the slaughterhouses that uh, do not follow the principle of giving the shock first to the animal and then a slaughter, and it, you cannot you run those manufacturers or factories any longer. The idea of closing down the meat processing factories that cater to the Muslims and also to the Jews for the kosher principle that, as I mentioned, are very close, it's almost the same, uh, has given really a big debate among the Muslims that now we cannot eat pure food. But ironically, some of these countries that have banned the procedure for the dabiha or uh, the Muslim slaughter, they don't have any problem if the meat is imported from the neighboring countries. Like, for example, in France, there's a ban for the Muslim dabiha, but then you can get the halal meat from England. Even eating halal has become a politics. Now, in the book, you explore uh, a number of other products that some people might not even imagine would be branded in this kind of pietistic way. Uh, but you talk about cosmetic products and toiletry products and fashion. Um, and one that I think per perhaps some people might not be aware of is Islamic branded toys. Um, so what types of toys do companies make and why would parents want to buy these products? Yes. The, uh, in addition to, you know, eating and then all the other things that you mentioned, the industry is thinking like everyday life, what people do, buy, entertain, 
and so forth. And by the way, one thing that some of the Muslim countries are trying to implement are the halal internet. Mm. So you can figure that out somehow, <laughs> how that could be possible. Um, going back to the toy industry, um, it started really actually with the hijabi dolls. And then the hijabi dolls became very fashionable things to purchase for your daughter if she is going to be veiled in the future, why not to give her a doll that resembles her and also dresses like her so she gets accustomed to looking at a beautiful doll that is hijabi and that's not going to be any issue in the future or um, why not? You know, you play with a doll that resembles the uh, idea of the same clothing that you are wearing. The whole idea of, for example, the market for the hijabi doll is another politics, and it actually started very innocently not with the hijabi dolls. Actually, Islamic Republic of Iran started to question the idea of our Muslim kids are playing with Barbie, which has nothing to do with our culture, and the way she's built and dressed is not uh, something moral for our culture. So if our kids want to play with a doll, we should have not a hijabi one. They were not uh, questioning that it should be hijabi or not hijabi. We should give the dolls that would be a representation of our own culture. So Islamic Republic of Iran started to manufacture dolls that they would be baby dolls, not the adult body, not like Barbie, but baby dolls that they would be dressed in many different folk costumes of Iran. So... That was many years before the hijabi dolls became some kind of a fashion. And at the beginning of that, they were very successful. And then they, there were other manufacturers that they started thinking about, okay, the hijabi dolls would be a good idea. And at the beginning, nobody was really making any particular doll uh, that would be called hijabi doll. It would be the same Barbie redressed um, or look-alike Barbie redressed. And it still will have the feature of the white girl or a white woman, but she will be wearing hijab. And once that it hit the market, it became such a popular item that other manufacturers started to imitate them. Let me just tell you something about this Barbie doll and then hijabi sisters fight, as I had mentioned it in my chapter about the dolls. Um, Barbie company, but actually, at the beginning, they completely ignored this competition of the hijabi dolls because they had always had a good sell in the Middle East. And then once, 
many of the Middle Eastern countries banned importation of the Barbie doll, and they were selling very good, they never felt like they have to compete with hijabi dolls until they started coming up with um, other dolls that the skin tones and then their hair were kind of more uh, of the other racial uh, culture. And then sometimes later, they started experimenting with a special edition of the burqa veil uh, Barbie, and then uh, a Barbie dressed in South Asian garment. And um, they felt like that, okay, this is a competition. Maybe the other uh, parents that they were always looking for the hijabi doll, um, they might be interested in that. Um, one of the biggest issues for the Barbie dressed in hijab was just actually they did not change anything about the Barbie's figure, which is, we all know, is very awkward, unusual, and no human beings ever built like that. Um, so the whole idea of just redressing the Barbie to look like a hijabi person was not really a hot idea. And they got a lot of criticism by the public who were adamantly against the hijab. So they settled with only one special edition, and I don't think they ever made them again. But this doll idea about, you know, wearing hijab, there are many manufacturers that the same dolls that they were producing before, now they are redressing them. There were some newcomers that um, commercially they started talking about if you buy this hijabi Afghan doll, you will be contributing to the building of Afghanistan, and I've talked about that maybe in my book, and I don't think any of that money that they talk about, because I tried to trace it, and I didn't get anywhere, but on the cover of the box, it just gives um, the idea of every doll that you buy, which was actually $30, uh, and I have purchased one because I'm collecting these also. Um, every $30 you spend, a dollar will go to an account to educate an Afghan girl. And I try to follow that link. It doesn't give me any information about what happens to this money or where it goes. So here is the kind of conclusion for the toys. Um, at least in the case of the dolls. Since the idea of being a Muslim and wear a hijab uh, is a global knowledge at this point, then the manufacturer of dolls, they have found a very good niche and plenty of the consumers that can purchase and they also they can cater to. 
it's not only the hijabi doll, but the accessories that is also goes with the doll. For example, some of the examples I have, like a Razan doll, she comes with a set of prayer carpet, and then with a set of uh, rosary beads, change of clothes for the indoor, outdoor, the schools, and you name it. I mean, you can spin off that idea and create many, many more, just like any other product. The exception is this is made with a religious idea in mind that the person who's going to buy it, you know, religiously feels good that giving something to her children that is associated with them, at least in principle. But my always question was, what the girls will do when they get a doll first? If this is for the modesty that the doll has a hijab, but what children actually do when they play with their dolls? The first thing is they remove the clothes. So there you go. If a doll has a hijab or not has a hijab, it's the same thing. You know, you undress and you redress them. So the same simple idea of redressing the same doll and it can promote sales was behind what I was discussing. It goes also beyond the dolls. It would be the games, what you call it, halal games, board games, that they would test the children about simple principles of Islam and then the children can participate in that. For example, what's the name of your prophet? Where was he born? And these are the board games. They also come up with electronic games. You know, the trip from Mecca to Medina to Al-Aqsa. So all this small information could be also played with the games. So they call it useful games. And then the games that you can use to educate your children about the religion and then how to be good. Even there is a series about how to be green and not be wasteful. And this, they take the whole idea of recycling, being green, not be wasteful, not to be greedy, not to have too many things of the same thing. They, are, they take it back to the hadith of the prophet what the Prophet assumingly said about how to live a simple life, not to waste. So these are like good lessons that is presented through the religion and is connected to how the Prophet lived his life. Well, it's a fascinating book, and you, you go into great detail, um, numerous cases. Uh, you explore the Muslim fashion and style industry to, to great lengths. Um, and I do hope that listeners will will pick up this fantastic book. Thanks for uh, thanks for writing it. Thank you very much for inviting me. That was my conversation with Fage Shirazi about Brand Islam, the marketing and commodification of piety, published with the University of Texas Press in 2016. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. We'll catch you next time.